You've stopped in at the guidepost. Brought to you by the American Saltwater Guides Association. Stock up on gear, grab a coffee at the counter, and get ready to hear incredible fish stories from the best captains on the East Coast and thought-provoking conversations with stakeholders and policymakers working to protect these fisheries. This podcast is presented by Costa Sunglasses. Hey guys, what you are about to listen to is a recording from a live event in spring of 2022 where Ben Gahagan and Bill Hoffman of Mass DMF stopped by the ASGA Striped Bass Symposium to talk about their recent research in a striped bass and striped bass release mortality. Now you're going to hear them reference a handful of visuals. If you want to see the full presentation uninterrupted, all you have to do is head to the ASGA YouTube. You can find that in our social media link in bios as well as going to YouTube and searching American Saltwater Guides Association. Uh, please note that this research that you'll hear discussed, uh, you are hearing information up to the date of spring of 2022. Uh, we know these guys are still working on this research right now, and we're hoping to have them stop by to hopefully tell us a little bit more later on this year in the spring. So enjoy. Yeah, I'm Ben. This is Bill. Uh... And I want to say thanks to Will for the introduction and Tony for the really kind words earlier. It's really great to be here. Uh, I think that Bill and I can honestly say that we've really appreciated ASGA showing up and doing everything they've been doing with the resources. We both work on public trust resources. It's not a word that's used a lot with fisheries for whatever reason. BHA, you know, you use it a lot for wildlife, but it should be used with fisheries. And we're out here for the resource, so it's awesome to see stakeholders show up and have their voices heard. Um, really think it was great for Amendment 7 that people were involved in getting out there. I would say that uh, they brought up recreational data. It's not the same as MRIP, but Massachusetts does have a uh, volunteer angler data collection team. And you have a lot of fishermen and guides here. Probably some of you are already involved in that. But if you're not and you want to be, you can find it on our website. It's the SADCT, which we call SADCAT. <laughs> for nothing else but uh it's a really great program it helps us get a lot of age and weight data that otherwise we wouldn't have that goes right into assessment work and i will also say uh, my day job at the division is a diadromous fish biologist so i'm not technically a straight bass biologist and right now at asmfc the uh, river herring stock assessment cycle is about to tee up so forage fish straight bass pretty you know important uh that is if you're conservation minded and you want to see more river herring please submit comments, go to meetings, make your voice heard about river herring because they're important. I think we're really at a crossroads. We have been at a crossroads and it's not getting any better. So it'd be great to see people show up for those fish. Yeah, great. And I'd just like to second what Ben said too, is that I thought ASGA did a really good job getting the public comment out. Um, you know, it's a public resource and it's everybody's fish, but um, I think the managers appreciated getting that clear message from the recreational sector on your preferences. And I know that it really helped in the, in the process. Um, and so I'm a marine biologist um, for Division of Marine Fisheries. I've been there for over 23 years now. Um, and I wear a couple hats, but um, I'm a research biologist. And we do a lot of tagging studies for multiple species, not only striped bass, but obviously for the purposes of today, the rest is going to be about some of the research that we've done um, over the last decade or so in striped bass. So um, this is pretty striped bass savvy crowd, so I'm not going to bore you with some of the more upper level um, stuff, but there is some 
essential life history that should be um, talked about um, that is relative to the rest of these talks. Um, and obviously, so striped bass is a large, uh, long-lived uh, species, and their coastal distribution ranges from North Carolina up to Maine, with some isolated pockets even further north and south. And they're anadromous, so they live the majority of their life in salt water, but then they uh, travel into freshwater to spawn. And the males reach maturity between two to four years, and the females reach maturity between five to eight years. And they have fidelity to their natal rivers, so when they spawn, they'll go back to the rivers that they were hatched in. And so there's three major spawning stocks on the East Coast, and that's the Hudson River, the Delaware, and Chesapeake Bay, with uh, some smaller contributions from the Roanoke River. And so um, striped bass is uh, important to the state of Massachusetts. Um, it's our, as Tony alluded to, it's really up and down these coasts. It's probably the most important recreational game fish, but certainly in Massachusetts. And so um, by weight, it's our number one fish that is targeted and caught. Um, and it's uh, by commercial landings, it's um, by not it's not our biggest, but by no means is it inconsequential. The recreational harvest is worth over $500 million in Massachusetts, and uh, commercial is over $3 million in landings annually. And Massachusetts is also important to the striped bass stock. There's a lot of effort in Massachusetts targeting striped bass. Um, we are usually between one and three on uh, recreational effort and recreational catch. Um, and then commercial catch, um, that's a quota-based system, and we're always number three in landings in commercially um, landed striped bass. And so um, Massachusetts has been really active in the management of striped bass, but also in the research of striped bass. So now I'm going to talk about some of our earlier studies um, that I was a part of um, that we conducted back um, 2006 and, and on, and then um, I have a couple studies to talk about, and then I'm going to hand it over to Ben. He's going to tell you a little bit more about what we've done more recently. Um, <laughs> Go back. Right. So um, in 2006 and 2007, we were receiving reports that there were large aggregations of striped bass in federal waters on Stellwagen banks. So that was in the EEZ. Um, the exclusive economic zone. And um, back in the 80s when stock levels were low, the uh, recreational sector the, or the federal government prohibited the take and targeting of striped bass in federal waters. So these fish were, um, in essence, um, not accessible to recreational fishery. And there was this perception that these fish uh, were resident easy and never came into federal waters. And uh, therefore, um, fishermen wanted access so they could get after some of these fish. So we created an acoustic telemetry study that examined these tra transboundary movements um, to evaluate, see if they came into state waters from federal waters. And so, um, so I don't know how much you know about acoustic telemetry, but real quickly, how it works is basically you have um, transmitters and receivers. And so tags, which is the transmitter, they're surgically or externally um, attached or implanted into a fish. And that fish transmits a unique ID and sensor information. And um, when it's within a, a distance, within the appropriate distance of a receiver, that receiver will record that information until I come and, or a scientist or somebody comes and downloads that information and that data. 
So what you get is like a unique timestamp thing that says this fish with its unique ID was in this place because you know where the receiver was and at that time. So you can actually track the fish that way. Right. So like I was going to say, it's, it's kind of like easy pass. <laughs> so when you drive through a toll booth and it pings you, that, uh, that's basically the same type of uh, technology. And so what we did um, in uh, 2008 we, and through 2010, we tagged uh, 159 fish uh, in Stel on Stellwagen Bank in federal waters. And um, the average size was about 88 centimeters. Um, and we were using a tag that lasted about two years. Now the tags last about 10 years, but, um, and they had um, a range of about a kilometer. And then the receivers were placed strategically in state waters. Um, so when they came from federal waters into state waters, they would be detected. And then we had what we call our gates to the north, so off of Cape Ann, and then south off the backside of Cape Cod, and, and then Cape Cod Bay. And those were really important, so especially when they moved south, um, so we could detect when they left um, and when they returned the following year. And so what we saw after several years of data collection is that the EEZ was not a complete refugium for striped bass, and that we saw and um, recorded movements into state waters um, every year routinely. And these fish um, would stay there actually for extended periods of time, June through November for some of them. And so therefore these fish were in fact available to the recreational uh, and the commercial fishery. And so, whoops, so after later, um, when the study was done, we brought in another scientist to assist us um, that you might hear a little bit more about this afternoon, um, Dr. Jeff Kneebone, and he helped us synthesize a lot of this information, and that's published in a peer-reviewed journal, so if you want to learn more about the study, it's available. And so, um, we did a good job documenting this um, longitudinal movement of striped bass, but um, there was still a lot of unknown about this latitudinal movement, so north to south. And that's important um, given how important Massachusetts is to uh, striped bass and how important striped bass are to Massachusetts. And so we formulated a question, um, where are bass coming from? How and when do they get there? and how and when do they leave? And this is important, especially the way um, if they manage. So obviously, Massachusetts has a large impact on striped bass. But when striped bass migrate out of these rivers, they move off the coast, and um, they're basically treated as one. When in, in actuality, this um, coast-wide stock um, probably has different um, mortality associated with it as they arrive and migrate at different times. And so this has created a lot of management ambiguity. And so this next acoustic telemetry study was our first attempt to try to address some of those questions. And so one of the benefits of acoustic telemetry um, and the technology that we used is that once these fish leave our acoustic array and they move down the coast, if someone else is using the same equipment, then they will detect our fish and then they can share that information with us. And so we were fortunate during that time working through the ACT network, the Atlantic Cooperative Tele Telemetry Network, uh, there were receivers up and down the East Coast and most importantly, there were in the spawning grounds, the Hudson, the Delaware, and the Chesapeake. And so what we saw, interesting, was uh, when the fish migrated up into Massachusetts in the springtime, 
largely the majority of the fish would come up through the Cape Cod Canal with a smaller uh, percentage coming up the backside of the Cape. However, in the fall, when they migrated south, we saw that largely the most of the fish uh, migrated down the backside of the Cape and down of the Cape Cod Canal. And so that was really important because it showed us the availability of the striped bass to the recreational and the commercial uh, fisheries. And so the other interesting information that we were able to get is the stock composition. Using the, the detection data that was from the spawning areas, uh, we saw that the fish in Massachusetts during our study time was largely from Chesapeake Bay, but it did vary from time to time. Um, and this was just conflicted a little bit with some of the previous studies. Um, Bergman and Lieberman in 1978 did a morphometric study, which is morphometric is basically when they take a picture of a fish and they take um, measurements looking for distinctions between different stocks. And um, so they used that technology and they found that the, that the striped bass uh, were, major, were from Chesapeake Bay and then Abrazio in 1987, she did morphology as well, uh, but she found that it varied. It was either from year to year and it could be from the Chesapeake um, and to the Hudson River, depending on the year. So, and again, that paper uh, was also published and, um, and written up by our core group and that's available if you wanna learn more about it. So those were the two early studies that we did. And then shortly after we finished this one up, Ben came along, and um, and uh, I'll, I'll, I'll steal a stunner, so I'll let him tell you a little bit more how. Yeah, how now now Bill has to deal with me talking over him at things. So, <laughs> yeah, so yeah, I had been previously working and done some Hudson River striped bass work uh, with acoustic telemetry, so it worked out really well. I I was hired about ten years ago, actually, just a little over ten years ago now, at the division and. Bill had just finished his work with Micah and we started talking and we decided to move forward. So, Will, I'm gonna, I designed this for, so that I would be able to do all the clicking. And uh, so Will and I are gonna work on our communication and I'm gonna give his finger a workout. Um, so it would be a little bit redundant to some of Bill's things, but we talked about taking that last study that Bill just talked about and taking to the next level and looking at what those migrations really meant for mortality and what were bass doing in Massachusetts waters. And like he said, we were able to capitalize, uh, compared Bill tagged your, tagged your fish in 2006 or 2009, and then now we're fast forwarding to 2015. And this is actually a diagram showing all the different receivers that fish we tagged in this later study in the mid 2010s showed up on. So we had more receivers and especially interesting are those uh, off Delmarva, you can see those wind energy area receivers that are out there testing to see what fish were moving through the wind proposed wind energy areas. And then also there's a massive gate at the mouth of Chesapeake Bay that wasn't there before for Bill stuff. Um, but again, it was just a great time to be doing this work. Everybody's using this, the same technology. And I'm gonna cover, uh, I'm gonna show one thing about coastal migrations and I'm gonna cover a few other papers that we've cooperated on. And then we'll get into this next big DMF study we've done. Go ahead, Will. Oh, sorry, and just making the point, Hudson River, as Bill made real quick, Delaware River, Chesapeake Bay, all wired up. All right, so Bill showed the figure everybody's always seen of the coastal migrations with the arrows and the seasons. These are all our bass. And so it's a weak time cycle, and you can, the bigger the dot, the more fish were detected at a receiver. So you can actually see through the fall, the fish are in mass, now they're gonna start coming down, going down through Delmarva off the Chesapeake, spend the winter there, 
get to February, fish are going to start coming into their spawning estuaries, making their way up the rivers. You see in sequence Chesapeake, Delaware, Hudson coming back down out and into Massachusetts waters. So these are all fish, and that's the diagram. And now we have the power to say when and they're, when they're leaving, how they're getting from place to place, because these fish are, for the most part, so coastally oriented. All these people put these receivers out, and we can track individual fish right up the coastline. So there can be holes of 50 to 100 miles, but for the most part, you can get a real continuous track. Go ahead, Will. So that allows us to look at a bunch of different time scales and different aerial scales as well. So this is a paper about uh, differential migration in Ches Chesapeake Bay straight bass. There's, I think there's with straight bass, there's been so much research over the decades, and you get one idea early and it never changes. It sticks in people's heads. So this is something where you know we're using this technology to change the story because we're finding out more about the bass. Uh, 100 fish were tagged over the course of a, a season, both in the spring and then in the fall through pound nets in the Potomac. Go ahead. And what they found out that, uh, you know, there's everybody always says, oh, all these young, all the male fish stay in the Chesapeake Bay, if you listen to anglers, and they don't come out. And this is the females, the big females go out, but the males stay small and they stay in the Chesapeake Bay. And that, what they found, and I was a co-author on this, was that migration was size, not sex dependent. And by for the time fish were 32 or so inches long, 50% of both sexes had moved there out of Chesapeake Bay and were making coastal migrations. And you can see that they kind of have the error bars. By the time they're 35, 36 inches, almost all fish are going out and making these migrations. There's a few fish that stay big and don't leave Chesapeake Bay. We've seen it in the Hudson too. But uh, it really is size, not sex dependent. Also interesting is that there was a, a payoff on that where mortality was higher for these smaller fish over the time of the study that stayed in Chesapeake Bay. Obviously, there's different regulations within Chesapeake Bay. There's a lot of environmental conditions in Chesapeake Bay that might not be favorable now for striped bass. And they really observed a very high loss of fish from the study in the first year for these smaller fish they tagged. So also very interesting. And then final point is that all the fish that left the bay ended up spending their summers in Massachusetts, getting back to what Bill was talking about, about how Massachusetts is kind of the epicenter of this recreational fishery. And a lot of fish are over here take out uh, offshore off mass or in coastal waters, taking advantage of that bait. You can also look at what's happening and how they're getting from place to place. So this is those wind energy area uh, arrays you could see in the coastal migrations. That tells us about what time of year and which direction fish are going. And you can see on the bottom, so you can see the directions, uh, blue arrows pointing north and, and then red arrows pointing south in the time of year over two years. And the environmental conditions, they had that array was set up so there was like an inner, middle, and outer parts of the array. And they were interested about how far offshore fish were migrating. And you can go, you can see the, the big part of this is the overall pattern. And then you have seasonal patterns on the size and the smaller. And you can see they really had a bit of a sweet spot overall where they were in that middle that's the red that's the, the the migratory pathway they were using as they went up and down but sometimes they were more a little bit further in or a little bit further out depending on season so these are all the kind of really important things that you can then take to management when you're designing a wind array where do you want to get at, put things where do you not want to put things that acoustic telemetry and other biotelemetry techniques can get you and i'll take a quick dip into the Hudson. Uh, this is a really cool study and what was found was that within that spawning population in the Hudson there's actually different what are called contingents. So there's the same a group within the same population that's acting has a different set of behaviors. 
and can lead to a whole different exposures to fisheries and other things. So what they found was that there was a whole group of slightly smaller fish that were spawning lower in the Hudson than the bigger fish that were going all the way up by Albany. And you can see this is the kind of how that shows that you have the red, the higher, uh, higher river spawning group, and then that blue lower, and that dark black line is the centroid is kind of the median of all these spawning behaviors for the two groups. You can see there are fish that do other things, but that's the median behavior. The red on the lower right are fish that were tagged in the first year in that lower group, but then the second year went up to the upper region. So these kind of oddballs and behavior does change as fish change sizes as well. Uh, but what they also found is that that could lead to differences in mortality. So these are fish loss in the two years in 2017 and 2018. And what you can see in 2017, what happened here is that the lower river warmed up quicker than the upper river, and that lower river group dropped out of the river after spawning about two and a half, three weeks earlier. So like early May, they dropped out of the river, and it looks like they were basically some of these first fish that got into the Long Island, you know, mouth of the Hudson fishery coming out, and they, they just disappeared from the study. They were, they were gone, and you know, you think about all oh, us right now, I'm a straight bass angler, I'm pretty excited to go straight bass fishing when my river herring work ends, but a lot of guys are out there right now, and you know, you get people, effort's high right now, people are excited to go fishing, and this is the, that first slug of bigger fish that hit the water, you know, where you're getting caught a lot, and probably led to increased mortality on that group of fish. So all of a sudden you have this behavioral attribute of a population they're different than the rest of the fish and that's going to lead to them getting more mortality so these are the kind of things you could never get at before you had tools like biotelemetry so i'm going to go and talk about this next project that bill and i did with micah dean and mike armstrong and i'm wrapping up the acoustic telemetry analysis over the next year or so and working into the genetic stock id part but i'll talk about both things so this is a very similar technique as Bill quickly went over. This time we went for three different study areas because we wanted to see if fish behave differently and had fidelity to not just their spawning area, but to places they spent the summer in Massachusetts waters. So we tagged, we made three study areas, Boston Harbor, the backside of Cape Cod, and then where, where we are now really, Buzzards Bay and Vineyard Sound. And we tagged almost 260 striped bass. We tried to evenly tag in all three areas in three separate size classes. So we had our, at the time, and this is great, you know, you have a decade of consistent management levels. <laughs> we were joking about this on the way down and, and fish, where fish were. So at the time in 2015, it was, you know, 28 inches below 28. It was going to be a, a school and you're putting it back. And then between you had the slot of everybody could keep from 28 in Massachusetts from 28 to 34, and then above 34 was a commercial fish so we had our schoolies our recreational fish and our commercially sized fish and we wanted to know across those size classes if mortality was different we used the same tag bill was using before at this point it had a seven year battery life so we could follow fish for a long time and so this is what our array looked like for this study uh, anything red bill and i were maintaining out of gloucester and then the blues are greg scomel's white shark but you can see that we did it we gated off boston harbor we had a gate off of Gloucester, uh, a gate off of Peacot Hill, out of, off Provincetown, and then we completely gated off Buzzards Bay and Vineyard Sound. There are all those red receivers and the, Cape, and the Cape Cod Canal as well. And our idea, where we really started thinking about this, was harvest hotspots. Like, uh, for 
well over a decade, what we had seen was the escalation of the recreational commercial fishery on Cape Cod, here on Cape Cod, and the Nosset, Chatham bite, and everything that was going on. And you can see commercial landings here over two days, you know, 25 years. Go ahead, Will. And what you saw was the pattern of the everything in the north in Buzzards Bay going down, and that, and then the Cape Cod landings just going up and up and up. It's a little bit of a different story now. We didn't really need this figure to show us what was going on, Will, because this is what we were seeing on the water and the reports we were getting. Anybody, a lot of the folks down here probably had to live through this, but it was guerrilla fishing and still is at times. Um, so we were concerned about if there's this really intense fishing, we're moving a lot of biomass in one place at one time, could this be having an adverse impact on certain stocks over others? And that, that was a big part of what we wanted to know. And as Bill said, is, is we're doing our research to resolve management ambiguity. We have all these rivers, but we manage them like this. So that leads to striper pie. We don't know what's in it, but it's a pie full of stripers, and that's what our harvest is. So this was, we wanted to provide information on stock composition of aggregations, examine whether those were stable year to year, were the same fish going back to the same place every year, or were they going different places? And then to, to determine whether where a fish came from, how it got there, and where it spent its summer in Massachusetts affected the chance it was gonna end up in a, dying in a fishery. Like how does that affect or fit the fishery mortality? All right, I'm gonna get up really quickly and explain this because I'm guessing nobody here, maybe one or two people have seen what this is. This is a chord diagram. And so on the top half here, you have aggregation. That's where we caught this fish. And you can see there's Buzzards Bay, Cape Cod, and Boston Harbor. Those are the three places we were tagging fish. On the bottom half, we had the spawning area. And this will change from thing to, from figure to figure, but it's the same idea. So each little sliver, like these little slivers, that's one fish. So on the top's where we caught them, connecting to where they ended up going is the spawning area. Everybody get it? Any questions? OK, good. Yeah, no, they're, they're confusing when you don't, I, I think they're very cool diagrams and they can be very powerful, but they're confusing the first time you see them. So the thicker that, that whole band together is, the more fish, right? So what you can see here is we tagged 175 bass and we were tagging across all size ranges down to like 20 inches. So we only got 70 fish that ended up being detected between 2015 and 2016 in the spawning estuary. But will the... Um, Majority of these fish were located in the Hudson River during the spawning season. And this is for, true for all three of the aggregations that we were tagging in. And there was really no difference. And there's the fancy scientific test to tell you so. Okay. So looking at the fish we tagged in 2017, fairly similar story. We did manage to tag more fish from the Delaware. Uh, we did have 41 fish that were tagged in 2015 and 20 and 2016 that showed up in the estuaries and I having so much trouble. And there were three fish, which was cool. That's something we don't know that much about that went from one in 20, basically 2015 tagged fish and 2016 were in one spawning estuary and 2017 were in a different spawning estuary. So the ghost of Frank Zappa is here to remind you that the, the, the action's really out there on the edges. Uh, the medians are fine, but it's really cool what's happening out there on the edges. So I, it's interesting to see those patterns. Cause I mean, that's how you have, and in the big picture, I'm making a joke, but it's, that's how you have new rivers start. You know, like these rivers where we don't have spawning now, it's those spillover fish that are gonna go and be exploratory and go spawn somewhere where habitats opened up. They're gonna reboot, reboot populations. So that kind of behavior is important. 
again, majority of the fish located in the Hudson and fancy scientific tests to say there's different composition aggregation, aggregation composition, sorry. All right, now 2016 and 2017, we have different connectivity. Again, that Delaware is really what did it. Go ahead. And now let's look at a size effect. What did, did size make a difference? So we have our, on the top our smaller fish, our schoolies, then our wreck fish and our commercial fish. And in 2016, there was a difference. You can see as the, the bigger fish, there was a stronger contribution of Chesapeake fish. So those big fish we were tagging, more of them were Chesapeake. And we saw the same thing in 2017. Um, I'm not sure whether this is about size differential migrations if like different populations are doing different different things in their migrations as much as it is that we were tagging in 2015 and 2016 and at that point it had been a solid 10 years since there had been a good chesapeake year class and the the smaller fish were just more proportionally hudson by this point and we're still seeing in those larger fish that we we're tagging that were eight, nine, 10, 12 years old, a fair amount of Chesapeake fish because that went back to the last good year classes that were coming out of the Chesapeake, but something I want to look at a little bit closer. So year to year, do fish do the same thing? How many, how many of y'all are anglers? How many of y'all think they do the same thing? One, two. two. You're also a scientist, you know, count, Luke. <laughs> uh, you count, sorry, I'm just kidding. Okay, so here we go. Bass tagged in 2015 during 2016. So you can see, go ahead, Will. Um, these are the three tagging areas we had. Because of the receiver coverage, we could blow it out. So they were saying, if we tagged a fish in that small area and it showed up in this larger area, that's what we're gonna say they were seeing in the same area from year to year. And this is what we saw. So on the top, these are fish, just fish we tagged in 2015 that came back in 2016. So we tagged, we handicapped ourselves and we didn't start tagging until about July 15th and we stopped tagging usually by like September 5th, September 10th because we wanted to get fish where they were hopefully set up for the summer, uh, which made great fishing in August, always the best, bass fishing in August. Um, but what you see here is that for the most part, fish really went back to where the same general areas in the second year where we actually tagged them. Uh, the lowest number there, that's 70% for Boston Harbor. I actually will probably end up lumping north, the North Shore, like that north of Cape Ann into Boston, like just saying the whole thing is north of the Cape Cod Canal, because you see a lot of behavior where they kind of skip back and forth. When you look at the actual daily records, you're like, all right, it's up here for two weeks, and they came back down, then went back up. Go ahead. 2016, same thing, tagged in 2016 during 2017. Yep. Again, very similar results. Now this is where it gets even cooler. All right, so if this is a fish that we tagged in, in 2015, where did it go in 2016? And then where did it go in 2017? And if it was a 2016 tagged fish, where did it go in 2016 and then in 2017? So we let the fish tell you where it wanted to be. Say that first year at large is where it actually wanted to be. We just caught it where it was going to. And what you see there, you already did it. Yep, is that it's even higher uh, when you do year two to year three of that fish being at large. One other way to look at it is fish with four years at large. And so basically there's a bar chart, the more, the bigger the bar, the more things there are. And if it's a color, it stayed in the same place the entire time for the different regions. And what you see is that 90% of those fish we had this long of a 
of our time record for stayed in that same area over that entire time. They didn't switch area. How are fish getting from one place to another? That could also be important. So uh, I'm, I am gonna get up again really quickly just because the text is small. So the first thing is where they came in in the spring, second, where they went in the fall. So this last one, last one is fish that just came into Buzzards Bay, left by left Buzzards Bay, they never went anywhere else. The next one is gonna be fish that went, came in in the spring as Bill showed before, through the canal, went back out through the canal, and yeah, hopefully everybody can read everything there. Uh, and what you can see, and then the color coding is by where they were tagged. So what you can see is those Cape Cod fish, and, and Bill, importantly, his tagging in that first study was off of Cape Cod. It was in federal waters, but it was up on Stellwagen off the nor north, just north of Cape Cod. And here we tag fish from all over the different places, and we're seeing something different, where these fish that summer north of Cape Cod, or of the canal, almost always go through the canal in the spring and go back through the canal in the fall, unlike those Cape Cod fish that go down the backside in the fall. Go ahead saw a very similar pattern in 2018. There's some extra rows here, and this is really cool, and this is why I love talking to people down here who fish hard, because I, when, when I, especially when I saw that second one, sorry, no, the third one, where it's all Cape Codfish, the pink, and it says Buzzards Bay, Vineyard Sound, to the Cape. Like, those were fish that we didn't, I've only seen it in that year, where they came in through Buzzards Bay, and then they went out through like Quick's Hole or Robinson's Hole or Woods Hole and out around the Cape. And I and I could not figure out what was going on, but uh, Will Poston mentioned Brian Coombs. He, he told me he'd seen the same thing. I ended up talking to a bunch of anglers down here and they said that in the spring of 2018, there were a ton of squid and butterfish in Vineyard Sound. So my guess would be, again, the fish are gonna go where the food is and they went and found all that bait and went out and around, which is a really interesting thing to then see that happen with the behaviors. But again, in the fall, those northern fish are going up through the canal, down through the canal. So how does that link to mortality, putting together this whole big picture? What, that's the whole end game for us. Uh, as an example, in 2017, 30, almost 30% of our tagged bass that entered Massachusetts waters in the spring. That's where the last time over the course of the summer, they, were, they didn't leave. You know, 30% of what came in didn't leave. And so when you look at that, now we have a bar chart and on the bottom you can see where the fish, uh, the last detection for the fish was and then the color coding is by season. So green in the spring, red in the summer and orange in the fall. And not unsurprisingly, the canal, there's a lot of fish the last time we heard them was in the canal. If you're from Massachusetts, you know that the effort's a little, a little high in the Cape Cod Canal. I saw only one guy when we came over the Bourne Bridge today, but it can be pretty high. Um, and importantly, how that all translates out is, well, that all of that fall canal effort, which is like our biggest single thing of fish dying, was from fish that spent their whole summer north of, Cape, of the canal. So there is potentially some real dif differential mortality on fish depending where they go and how they get there. So uh, quickly, I'm gonna talk about the genomics portion of the study and that data is being processed right now. I don't even have the data in hand. All the, all the uh, samples are up in Canada being run over the next month or two. So I'm really excited to get at the mixed stock samples, I should say, not necessarily uh, the other work we've done. So I'll go over to some of that. Um, so 
in, anyways, anybody my age here right now is hopefully smiling at this slide. Um, you know, this is a good question for genomics. Genomics, have, uh, the, it's not genetics anymore, it's genomics. We're looking at these huge data sets. We have a lot of power to do things. Um, so we're hoping to use these tools, and I'm gonna go over really quickly, both for this project and then to inform future stock assessments and knowing is half the battle. So, um, what's going on with genomics is they're just getting so fast and so powerful. I, I mean, if uh, the COVID vaccine thing is really the same thing they allowed us to have COVID vaccines as quickly as we did is the same thing that I'm using here now. It's the same technologies. And so all of a sudden, in the last decade, we've gotten the capability where you could literally collect samples from a fishery on a Tuesday, and by Friday, you could know where those fish came from if you have every all the information you need. So all of a sudden, you have this technology that's going to give you reproducible from lab to lab results fast so you can actually make informed decisions about uh, the information you're collecting, and they're going to be accurate enough for management use. So genomics is really turned a corner in the last 10 years. And this is an example of an uh, Atlantic salmon paper. And so you can see all these different, the different colors for different runs. And in the lower right-hand corner, there's like an arrow, arrow pointing towards these little islands. And that's where this fishery actually occurred. Um, so go ahead, Will. And what they found was that most of the fish they were catching weren't from the, anything we were near there. They were, in fact, a lot of them were from northern Labrador. You know, but they were able to figure that out through genomics and figure it out quickly so they could actually effectively manage this Atlantic salmon fishery that was an ocean intercept fishery, and they were catching salmon from everywhere. They're doing this with a bunch of salmonids on the West Coast. We're starting to hopefully get it not on a real-time basis, but pulling the oil uh, stick on river herring and other bycatch species. So the idea is now to bring that to striped bass. Uh, the first step in that is figuring out what the blueprint of the genomic blueprint of striped bass looks like on the East Coast. So two years ago, we published this paper, uh, and we this is where all the populations on the East Coast we sampled from. So we had a really good spatial and fairly comprehensive as, as to where fish are spawning. Baseline is what this is called, and this is what we found. This is another hard to interpret figure. I apologize, but basically what you're seeing is if it's the majority of the color in that section is it means it's different and what you can see here is that the first three groups there one two and three are very distinct those are all canadian and you can see how like solid they are for the miramache shubanekity and st john river and then the fourth group is the hudson and it's a little bit more muddled with other things and now you have the delaware and all the chesapeake runs which are a lot more muddled uh, but they are a distinct group and the Delaware does fall in with those Chesapeake. Um, there is some ability to, to differentiate between Western and Eastern Chesapeake, and then we have the North Carolina populations. So we're, when we go to assign a fish in the future, these are the groups we'll be able to get back to. It'll be like stock complexes, they call them reporting groups, but if we aren't able with the current technology, and I don't know if we will be able to get right back down to like an individual population. Part of that is because we've done so much stocking across places. So when we when we take a fish from the Chesapeake or from one run in the Chesapeake and then reseed a different river, all of a sudden that they're gonna look the same genetically. This is the same way that we did the Hudson up to the Kennebec. The Hudson and the Kennebec are different populations that are gonna be working differently. But because we seeded the Kennebec with Hudson fish, using these tools, they look the same. Uh, and then going back to the accuracy, 
what's really good this is like basically a cross test is that if you took you basically played with the sample sizes and did a bunch of millions of tests what you see is that it's very good at getting fish that were you know these are known population fish these are from our baseline so we had you know 247 fish in the delaware chesapeake group 247 of them ended up being assigned back to the delaware chesapeake group in one fish where they just couldn't assign it so this is a really high accuracy it's like over 90 percent accuracy overall 95 percent accuracy so this is gonna be a great tool um we have over 5,000 samples we've collected uh through spills group as fisheries dependent investigations and then through uh sad cat angler program i was talking about for all and we're getting those run right now and I do want to, uh, for all the other Massachusetts anglers, thank you, because that's recreational license money that helps seed that. So uh, we run a bunch of them on recreational license money, and then we use that as match to get a federal grant. And the deliverable on that federal grant should be that uh, we're going to use all of the 5,000 samples to come up with an empirical model on how much, how many samples and how often every state would have to take to get a good estimation of the reporting group level harvest in coastal waters so we can finally get away from that striper pie and have actual mortality attributed to each population for the coastal harvest so hopefully in the next five years that's what happens and hopefully next year we can come back and i'll be able to tell you more about that and what that actually looks like um as i alluded to earlier you make these plans you do these big studies and then everything changes this is just when you ask some stability, it changes. So I'm going to hand this back to Bill, but I, I think as everybody knows with Amendment 7, you know, a lot of things Willie and Tony and everybody else and John have been doing the good work on. Uh, it's been a changing fishery. So you have a, this is just a figure to show that in the last 20 years, we've picked up a ton of recreational landings and a ton of, as the stock has gone up, and recreational uh, release mortality has become a big issue. And in Massachusetts, go ahead, Will. That's a, definitely a big issue because as Bill showed earlier, we're typically second or first in the amount of recreational catch in the state. So that ends up being a lot of recreational discards and a lot of dead fish that we didn't mean to be dead, but unfortunately, for whatever reason, they end up as dead fish. So yeah, it's the next problem. <laughs> All right, so um, not to keep you from your lunch, but I did want to just touch on real quick on some of the studies that we're currently working on and that I think you'd be interested in. So this is um, a study that we've done over the last couple of years, and it's use of the circle hooks as a conservation tool in the striped bass fishery. And so um, now that, you know, the common theme here is we know this is the condition of the stock right now, and the SSB for striped bass is, is decreasing. And... Um, and Massachusetts harvests a lot of striped bass. In 2019, we sold 193,000 saltwater fishing licenses, um, and we estimated that we caught over 5.5 million bass. 195,000 of those were harvested. And so um, if you apply that to the currently used post-release mortality rate of 9%, that's like 500,000 striped bass um, dead. And so when we saw this trend happening, um, Massachusetts got proactive and we wanted, we mandated the circle hook. Um, so anytime you're targeting straight bass, you need to use our circle hook. And then ASMFC the following year mandated coastwide. And why use circle hooks? It makes a lot of sense. Um, this, they've been widely studied in other fisheries. The Bill Fish Foundation requires them. Um, they're federally mandated in, if you're offshore shark fishing. 
In Florida, they use them for reef fish, for targeting groupers and snappers. But surprisingly, there was a paucity of information on the use of circle hooks for striped bass. Um, so using acoustic telemetry, we created a new study um, to es estimate their conservation benefit. And this made a lot of sense for us. So based on Micah Dean's and my past experience, um, we've studied post-release mortality in other fisheries, and we've done it for um, ground fish, mainly haddock and um, cod. And it, it's basically, it was easy then. We put out an array of receivers. We monitored their vertical movements between receivers and then their horizontal movements by depth. And so in, in the bottom right, if um, an active fish was swimming around, you could look at his depth profiles and his movement. That's on the live fish. The one on the bottom, um, you can see where it basically flat lines in depth, it's only moved one receiver, two receivers, that was a dead fish. But um, technology's evolved, um, and so now what we applied was a little bit different tag, same company, same concept, concept, and that was the use of an accelerometer. And these could be used to measure acceleration or tail beat, and we chose to use tail beat. So the way this works is that um, basically instead of measuring um, movement on all three axes, it just measures on two axes. So as the fish is swimming, it's recording that, that um, pattern, and so there's uh, um, some data on the bottom right, and that's what it looks like when you plot it. You have a meters per second, so that's your speed over time. And then if, you, if the fish dies, you'll see again, it's very similar, it, it flatlines. So this is a really easy way for us now to tease out mortality. Um, what also is really cool about this tag is that um, you can get mortality over um, a longer period of time. So rather than like, if you think you catch a fish and it doesn't look good and you throw it back, you assume it dies, what, a couple hours? Well, a lot of our fish died days after they were released and you can see they're, they slow down and then they slowly succumb to that um, release event. Um, and so this was a really unique tag that we took advantage of to do that. So um, over the two years, we tested, we did four treatments. Uh, we tested the 6-0 um, octopus J-hook and then a 6-0 inline circle, an 8-0 inline circle, and then the eagle claw 10. And we're really, we're just trying to detect the difference between the hooks and then between the hooks and the J. And we used um, only natural baits. We didn't do any artificials. We used just live or dead bait. Most of the time it was mackerel because that was what was available to us. And then we also collected other um, data elements that will be useful probably down the road, such as temperature, angler skill level, fight time, handling time, and release time. And so the other really interesting part about the study for us is that when we, by, when we caught the fish and released it, we assigned a score to it. So, for example, if it was a perfectly hooked fish and it was caught in the hinge, say, we call that condition score one. But conversely, if there was a fish that you got it and is almost dead on arrival or, you know, looked like that on the bottom center picture there, you know, mortality was imminent and you knew that was going to be dead. And so we could sign that a condition um, a score of like four. And so what's interesting, what will be useful for that is that um, right now we're used acoustic telemetry to associate mortality to those condition scores. But in the future, we could come up with a study design, maybe ask anglers like you to document how the fish was caught, and then by based on just the location and the condition of that fish, we could assign mortality to that fish and not even have to put a tag in it. So the circle hooks improve survival. It's unfortunately right now it's inconclusive. We are working up the data um, this summer, 
and we hope to have something out in this fall. But as Ben and I can both attest, and I'm sure many of you anglers out there that use circle hooks now for striped bass, they're really not perfect. And there's probably other factors that are going to be contributing to release post-release mortality, um, such as the size of the hook, the handling practices, um, and the temperature and water. And so moving forward, circle hooks may be a really good tool, but education really is going to be uh, you know, paramount. And this is kind of probably going to lend into what you're going to hear more about this afternoon after lunch from Keep Them Wet. But um, handling practices, um, better handling techniques, and really how to reduce these fish. Um, because you know, effort controls and these hooks aren't going to save this problem now. We really need to find other ways to reduce mortality in this fishery until we can get some good year classes coming back and rebuild this stock. So with that, um, that's it, I think, for now. And uh, if you guys have questions, we'd be happy to answer them.